What do we think of when we think of Jesus, friend of sinners? Uh, is it that Jesus loves those who mostly have it together? Is it that he loves those who do the right things but you know, make the occasional mistake here and there? He loves those who are responsible and, and, and mature and, and they can manage their finances well? Is it that he loves those who uh, dress appropriately and act right according to the law? That's not really the picture we are given in the Gospels, is it? But we keep defaulting to this line of thinking because it feels right, it sounds right. The well-behaved student gets the teacher's good attention and focus. The disciplined child is preferred in some manner by the parent. The good patient gets uh, good treatment from the doctors and the nurses. That, that just tends to be the way that things are. I, I, I'm constantly asking my children why they can't just behave and act right still have no answers, but I will keep you posted on this development. This is human nature, uh, to look for outward expressions, to prefer those right outward expressions. It's not necessarily looking into the heart, and it makes us grateful that God doesn't look at people the way people look at people. As God told Samuel when he was looking for the future king in Jesse's home and has to tell him that it is not the outward external appearance that he looks for, but it is rather the heart. Well, as we step back into Mark after our brief detour through 3 John, we're thrown right back into Mark's account of this fast-paced life of Jesus and this morning we're looking specifically at the call of Matthew, the tax collector. In many ways, the call of Matthew parallels the call of the first four disciples that we read in chapter 1 of Mark's gospel, that of Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Jesus uh, approaches these men, he calls them uh, to follow him, and that is their response, is to follow him. And Matthew is very much the same in that manner, but there are also some, some big differences between the fisherman and, and the tax collector, and we'll come to those in a moment. But, but I want us to think, first think together at this setup for our second encounter between Jesus and the scribes. After Jesus has demonstrated his ability to forgive sin, which was a major issue, after he's created this controversy with the religious leaders by healing the, the paralyzed man who the friends that ripped open the ceiling and they, they lowered their friend Mark says, he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. It's interesting in this passage, the fact that Mark says that the crowds were, were coming to him. As we know, Jesus had performed miracles and, and healings, uh, and so there's, of course, interest in this. 
Jesus has cast out demons, and, and of course there's interest in this. Jesus has challenged the religious leaders of the day. Of course, there's interest in this. And yet he continues to give the people what they really need. They need teaching. You see, the teaching that was available to them in that time period was very nationalistic. The teaching that was available was very legalistic. The teaching that was available to them was unhelpful. And what they needed was someone who would put aside the the nationalism language since Jerusalem would be destroyed 40 years later. What they needed was someone who would clarify the, the, the legalistic language and would rightly help them understand the law of God and be able to distinguish between what God said and what man had created as law. Since the leaders in these days had really used their own laws to to abuse and take advantage of the people in Israel. And people were craving clarity. They were craving clarity. But the other thing that amazes me about all of this is that the people are coming to Jesus for, for different reasons. But he is going to someone specifically to call them, to, to draw them to himself. Now, he has not abandoned the many. He, again, he's giving them what they need. He, he's teaching them. He's feeding them. But he's also moving toward one specific person. Perhaps a subtle nod to election here by Mark. I used that term last week, and somebody from the 1030 service came up to me, and they said, thank you for using the E word. And I said, you know, we did an entire series at 9 o'clock on the doctrines of grace, I was a bit shocked by that. So the E-word is, by comparison, fairly tame uh, here. But in thinking about that uh, idea, how grateful are we that Jesus pursues us individually, that, that Jesus seeks us out and has sought us out, just as he has done here with Matthew. We read in verse 14, and he passed by and he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose up and he followed him. So what is different between uh, Levi or Matthew is just another uh, name that he has, much as like Cephas and Simon is the same name for Peter. What's different from, from Matthew's calling that, that, that is in contrast or, or different from the, the calling of, of Peter and Andrew and James and John. Well, the fishermen are called out of their vocation of, of fishing. It, it was a common trade in those days. Now, they weren't Harvard scholars. They weren't even UGA scholars. They were a bit rough. Uh, but again, they would have been fairly common. Average. While Matthew is a, is a tax collector, this would have been much less common. Let me paint you a picture of what a, a tax collector looked like in these days. Uh, in those days, tax collectors were the lowest of the low. That actually reminds me of uh, Mark Twain once said, what's the difference between a taxidermist and a tax collector? The taxidermist will only take your skin. Um, <clears throat> 
But, but why are the tax collectors so despised in Jesus' day? Well, they were seen as collaborators with the occupying Romans. They were traitors in the view of the Jews. Um, here's a little picture of what tax collectors would tax. There was a personal income tax. There was a, a poll tax just for existing uh, for men, this is ages 14 to 65. For women, this is ages 12 to 65. There was a land tax, uh, one-tenth of grain grown, one-fifth of wine or oil. There was a duty tax. There was a tax on your cart. There was a tax for each wheel on your cart. There was a tax for each animal that was pulling your cart. There was a, a tax on articles bought, articles sold. There was an import tax. There was an export tax. A tax collector could set up his booth on the side of the road and make people unload their cart and then tax each of those items discriminately or indiscriminately. And that is what Matthew is doing. He's got this booth on the side of the roll, on the side of the road. Robbers and murderers were considered in the same category with tax collectors. Not only were they traitors, but they were often extortionists. They would line their own pockets with these added numbers. They were therefore kept out of the synagogue, as we see in the prayer of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke chapter 18. They weren't allowed into the festivals. They weren't allowed into the Jewish feasts. When someone became a tax collector, they essentially became an outcast. If a Jewish person was walking down the street and they saw a tax collector coming towards them, they would cross to the other side of the street so as not to be contaminated or, or be near in contact with a tax collector. I think you get the picture here. That's what Matthew was. And Jesus is drawing near to him. He, he's coming to him. He's pursuing him. That Jesus... We, in this story, we're, we're not sure which is worse. Is it, is it worse that Jesus was going and calling a tax collector? Is it worse that the tax collector actually follows him? Then there's this dinner party at Matthew's house. I can only imagine how the other disciples were feeling at this point. Now, they probably knew Matthew from all the times that they were carting their fish back home or to sell them, and they had to go by Matthew's booth and and he would have been taxing them however he would have been taxing them on their fish and on their fishing rods and nets and all that sort of thing. And now here they are in his house and feeling quite strange, I'm sure. And their house is it's filled with tax collectors and sinners. Well, what, is the, what does the Bible mean by sinners in this section? Aren't we all sinners so what is this describing? These are the immoral people. Those who would have held occupations that, that the scribes would have said were incompatible with keeping the commands of God. They were the sinners who were clearly sinners. They weren't hiding it underneath anything. It was apparent to everyone. So what would this look like today? Just imagine for me, that you've been invited to a dinner party and you pull up to the home and the yard is, is littered in political signs, 
but they're not for the candidates that you support. They're for the, the other side. And not just one candidate that you don't agree with. It's all of the candidates that you don't agree with. And you mutter something under your breath to your spouse or whoever you're taking to this party. And you walk up to the door and you can see inside the house a little bit through the windows and through the front door. And you can see some of the guests inside. And you see inside and you see it's filled with some of the the higher ups at organizations like Planned Parenthood. And it's filled with vocal people from the, the homosexual community. And it's, it's filled with people who are gender fluid. And, it, and it's filled with anarchists. And it's filled with Marxists. And it's filled with nationalists. It's filled with all of these people. And you're all wondering when are you going to hypothetically in this story turn and run and tell all your friends about the strange dinner party that you were invited to. But the person that answers the door when you knock is Jesus. And you look at him and you say, what are you doing here? Jesus, I think you're at the wrong party. If that's what we're thinking, then perhaps we have misunderstood Jesus' coming. And I think perhaps we have misunderstood Jesus' mission. Because you see, that is what the scribes of the Pharisees thought. Now, the scribes of the Pharisees, these are the uber-Pharisees. There are scribes, there are Pharisees, and then there are the scribes of the Pharisees. So they are ultra-elite. When they saw him, that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Notice that they ask his disciples, And I would imagine the disciples are wondering the exact same thing. We don't know. This is a strange party for us too. We've literally been told our whole lives to despise these people, but but we're following our masters. There must be something here. But when Jesus heard the question, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You see, all of us are, by status, unrighteous before a holy God. But there are many who believe that that they are righteous based on effort, based on appearance, based on certain behaviors. But based on what they present to the outside, to the outside world, to to their neighbors, to their friends, to their families. But you see, Jesus calls the downtrodden. Jesus calls those who are poor in spirit. Those who have looked into their hearts and seen nothing but unrighteousness. Those who who recognize their spiritual bankruptcy. Those who understand that they stand condemned by God. But here's the thing. You don't see your spiritual bankruptcy and then receive the righteousness of Christ and then go back to trying to earn the free gift that is given. 
But that is still our tendency. How many of us here have gone through our own prodigal son experience and we've come to the the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, or as the, the story of the prodigal son says, he, he came to himself, he came to his senses. We, we've come to the saving knowledge of Christ, and, and then we've only just to become the older brother in that parable. And so we go from needing repentance to trying to withhold it from others. God has cleaned us up. He's forgiven us. He's showed us the right way to live, living in obedience to Christ. Why? Because he has saved us from the despair and the endless cycle of us trying to save ourselves. But we keep going back to the, to the gutter to, to make our Christian walk about earning it. Because we've been cleaned up and set right by God, are we now in a position to, to judge those who don't yet know him? If we know the work that God has done inside of us, whether we grew up looking good on the outside or bad, then we know what he can do in the lives of anyone else. And I mean anyone else. I think of my friend Thomas Terrence. We've talked about him a few times here. A former KKK member. He tried to blow up a Jewish businessman. He, he hated Jewish people. He hated black people. Most of us would have said, let him just rot in prison. What a terrible person. But by grace, he was saved and his ways were completely changed. And his desires and his love completely changed. Thomas would go on a speaking tour with a man that was essentially his immediate counterpart for the Black Panther movement. Most of us would have seen violence and hatred and said, you know what, throw him in prison, keep him in prison, what a terrible person, but by grace he was saved and his ways were completely changed. The prince of Isis uh, ordered the killing of, of, of totally innocent people, violent, hateful. We, we would have said, someone needs to kill this man to save the lives of many. But by grace, he was saved and, and he was completely changed. We think of Abby Johnson, the, the former director of Planned Parenthood. You know, heartless, violent in medical ways. We would want her kicked out. We would want her banned. We'd want her canceled. We want her stopped. But by grace, she was saved. And her ways completely changed. Saul, from Pharisee, heartless, brutal, violent toward Christians, we would want him put in chains and stopped. But by grace, he was saved and his ways completely changed. And ironically, put in chains for the gospel. You, me, violent in our thoughts, heartless in our actions, hateful in our speech. By grace, we have been saved and our ways changed. All were sick. All need the medicine of, of grace. All were sinners, all unrighteous. And he came and gave us his righteousness, 
And what is our desire? That, that, that heaven has enough bad people in it who have, who have been transformed by grace. God has shown enough grace. Or could it be that the, the, the most unlikely people, the, the people that we think would want nothing to do with God, might actually be the people who respond well? The funny thing here is Jesus' language. He, he says, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. As we said before, we are all sick. There's no one who is not actually sick in the eyes of God. And all need a physician. But it is the scribes of the Pharisees who have convinced themselves that they are right before God by their own outward works and, and their appearance. And yet they are the ones that have the greatest need in their sickness. The, the, the tax collectors, they know that they're despised by the community. They know they're not welcome in the synagogue. They know that they can't go to the festivals and the feasts. The sinners, they, they know what people think of them, and they know what God's Word says about them in the way that they live. So when grace and, and mercy are shown to them, rather than the, the weight of the law crushing them, they respond to it quickly. But the one who needs the doctor, but has convinced themselves that they don't, actually has the furthest to go. This all fits perfectly well in the theme of, of Mark's gospel that we've, we've been covering as we are titled this, Jesus, Servant, and Savior. He, he, he didn't come to, to, to judge and to be served, but he came to serve and bring the good news. He, he did not withhold this news from, from anyone. The, the Pharisees and the scribes are hearing the teaching, the same message of repentance and forgiveness and, and love and the invitation to the kingdom of God. The difference was in the response. Let me close this with two illustrations. Recently, I heard a teaching where a group was challenged about what we think of non-Christian people. And how much time do we actually spend with them? Do we hide in our sort of holy huddle and stay in our echo chamber and this is different from sort of the gathering of the body of believers for, for spurring on and love and good deeds and, and being edified. But, but, but is that the only place where we, where we come and then we make it an echo chamber and we, and we spend our time and we neglect the lost completely? Well, there was discussion around the tables uh, around this topic and one of the participants was asked if they were challenged by the message that was shared and the person's response was, the Bible tells us not to argue with people, therefore I'm just going to leave them alone. Oh, if people had acted towards this person the way that they seek to act towards others, and withholding grace and mercy and love to, to lost people, where would they be? Where would Rosaria Butterfield be if the, the pastor that took the time to meet up with her hadn't taken the time to meet up with her? 
Where would all of these people be that we just mentioned a few minutes ago if a believer had not come and, and, and been loving and kind and gracious and patient with them, sharing the gospel, sharing life, witnessing, caring, being the hands and feet of Christ? Where would all of those people be? The second illustration comes from Scripture, and it happens to, funny enough, come from John chapter 3, which we all heard read a week or two ago. <laughs> and it's the story of Nicodemus. The, the, the Pharisee who was genuinely striving to understand who Jesus was it seems every time that he comes up in Scripture, he, he seems to be progressing in his understanding. He, he comes to Jesus and he asks Jesus about his ministry. And Jesus explains to him spiritual rebirth. And then in John chapter 7, when the leaders want to kill Jesus, he stands and he says, does not the law require that we give him a fair hearing and try to understand what it is that he's actually doing? And finally, in John chapter 19, after the crucifixion, it's Nicodemus who goes out and purchases 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe with which to wrap the body in accordance with the burial practices of the day. He, he is a literal Pharisee who has lived this outward expression of, 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 of righteousness and perfection from himself. And yet it was his heart that was changed. Recognizing the, the sickness within and willing to allow the physician to do his work. Now what do we think of Jesus being friend of a sinner? How would he have us act? How would he have us behave as as his ambassadors, who are the people in our lives that we are building relationships with, that we are uh, uh, not just through evangelism, but, but are genuinely getting to know and, and building real friendship and spending time with. I, I, I assume that not all the tax collectors at this dinner party became Christians all of a sudden. They didn't all follow Christ, and yet Jesus still spends time with them. Let's pray and ask that the Lord would help us. As we've heard from his word this morning, think about what it is that he would have us do. Father, I think one of the things I'm always amazed with is just the grace and the patience of, of Christ in the Gospels. And here is the Son of Man through whom our world was created. The one of whose tr the train of his robe barely fills the temple. And the angels and the archangels cry, holy, holy, holy. And yet he humbled himself and he's sitting in a room that most of us today would have said, what are you doing here? And yet that was us at points in our life where we were the detestable, 
And yet by grace, you have saved us and you have given us white robes. Not so that we can point the finger in other people's faces and tell them how lost they are. Or to withhold grace and mercy from them. Or to to hope that terrible things happen to them. But because we know that it is by grace that we have been saved through faith. That we can live unafraid, unashamed of the gospel. And we don't have to shove it down people's throats. But it can be through effort and time and energy and patience of pouring into people's lives of being a good neighbor, of being a good friend, and then capturing the opportunities that you present to speak the truth in love. And so, Lord, I know my own heart and my own proclivities to to wander away from this and to to focus on the, the things that you have for me to do when, Father, I do wonder if these are the things you do have for me to do because you have called us to be salt and light. And now we need eyes to see the lost world, not to bring it under our own judgment, but to bring good news, the good news of Christ. For that is when revival comes, for that is when truth is spread. And so, Father, we ask that you would give us careful time to consider those that you've laid in our path. That we, Lord, would not have turned from the prodigal son to the older brother but that we would remain humble in these things and be used by you for Christ's purposes. We pray this in his name. Amen.